There is nothing we hate more than admitting we're powerless. I can't fix it. I don't have the resources. I don't have the intelligence. I don't have the money. I don't even have the willpower. I can't fight my way out of this and I can't figure my way out of this. Do you know it's not until you reach that point that you're even a candidate for an awakening? Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm glad you've joined us today. I'm Aaron Paulus, your host for Resonate. Well, over the past few weeks, we've been in a series on revival called Awakenings. Today, Pastor Trent concludes his message on revival praying. We pick up in 2 Chronicles 20 and find out what the nation of Israel does when they find themselves in a state of emergency. Here's Pastor Trent. So Jehoshaphat says, we're assembling the people. Uh, We use the term solemn assembly here because we understand there's a state of an emergency going on. And we need to understand how critical this is. Jesus said, my house is to be called a house of prayer together in community. Do you know what you will find if you study the prayers in the New Testament? you will almost always find that those prayers were gathered prayers in community. It uses the words our and we rather than my and me. It's prayer in community. You say, oh, I could never pray out loud and I just wouldn't know what to say and I'm sure somebody would be sitting over there grading me and I'd never get more than a, like a D minus on any prayer I'd ever pray. And I'm like, you don't get it. How do you learn to pray? You learn to pray by listening to people who know how to pray. And there are some people in this church that know how to pray. You need to figure out where they are and where they're going to pray and go in and listen. And you need to learn to pray in community. We together need to assemble ourselves in times of seeking the Lord. Here's the third characteristic of revival praying. Revival praying focuses on God's sovereignty. So what did they pray? Look here in verse 6. Here's the script of their prayer. They said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Now, they asked God if he was God in heaven. Did they ask God if he was God in heaven because God didn't know whether or not he was God in heaven? Why would they pray that way? Why would they, first of all, vertically focus on who and where God was? Wouldn't you expect if the marauding Texans had surrounded us that we would go and say, God, get them? Wouldn't wouldn't that be the first thing you would pray? That's not the first thing they prayed. The first thing they prayed was not that God would relieve the problem. The first thing that they prayed was that they would get an accurate view of who God was and what his power was like. And so he says, are you not God in heaven? By the way, what's the answer to that question? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am. I'm sure that was the answer back. You rule over all kingdoms of the nations, not just our kingdom and our nation, but the nations that are now surrounding us. You rule over them. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. What do we need to understand about God when we're in a season of an emergency? 
We need to understand how serious the threat is, but we also need to understand how powerful our God is. And we need to understand that not one king, one president, one terrorist, or one nation moves one inch without the permission of Almighty God. That's the perspective we need before we start asking God to change the situation, is that God can and will move on our behalf. Look down in verse 7. They ask another question. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Yes or no? Yes, as a matter of fact, I did that. Verse 8. And they lived in it and have built for you in, a, in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, look at verse 9. Do you see the quotation marks? Let me tell you something about verse 9 before I read it. They didn't make up verse 9. As a matter of fact, verse 9 is a quotation from 1 Kings chapter 8. Apparently, they were praying with an open Bible, which is always a good thing to do so that you know that when you are praying what God has already said he will do, you're praying according to his will. And so they just quote God. That's always a great thing to do in your prayer. Just remind God of what his promises are. And so they quote him and they say, God, here's what you've told us to do. If disaster comes on us, the sword and judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you for your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. And now they finally get to their request. They say, and now behold, in case you haven't noticed, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. A little note here on this verse. Do you remember how I told you that these were the leftover inhabitants of the promised land before Israel went in? God told the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, you are not allowed to harass Moab. I will not give them over to you. Leave them alone. Now, if you were currently a resident in Israel and you were looking over the fence and now you see the Moabites surrounding you, would you be tempted to think, hey, God, why didn't you let us wipe those people out when we entered into the land in the first place? Maybe they were tempted to think they had a better plan than God. And that's why revival praying always needs to focus on sovereignty because when the threats are the nearest and the danger is the closest, that's the point at which you are prone to doubt the sovereignty of God's plan. And so it's almost as if in this verse they're reminding God, hey, God, I think we would have had a different plan if we were God, but we're not. So uh, now what are you going to do? And so he get down to verse 10 and it says... Um, these men are gathered around us. And then verse 11 says, Behold, they reward us by coming out to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. And so they focus, first of all, vertically on who God is. Why? Because worship always precedes asking. They have to get a right understanding of who God is. You have to get a right understanding of who God is before you ask him to do anything on your behalf. 
And we have to understand that when God is magnified in my mind, fear is minimized. That's what was going on in this country. They were enslaved to fear, and yet they went to God, and when they magnified God, they minimized their fear. Don't doubt the plan of God when the threats are the nearest. Here's the fourth characteristic of revival praying. It acknowledges our inadequacy. Look at verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? And so they request, Lord, the enemies have surrounded you. Will you not get involved in this battle? For we are powerless. Underline that word powerless in verse 12. We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us, and we do not know what to do. Ever been there? But our eyes are on you. You know, there is nothing we hate more than admitting we're powerless. I can't fix it. I don't have the resources. I don't have the intelligence. I don't have the money. I don't even have the willpower. I don't even have the desire. I can't fix it. I can't figure it out. I've tried. It doesn't make sense on paper. I can't fight my way out of this. And I can't figure my way out of this. Do you know it's not until you reach that point that you're even a candidate for an awakening? When you get to the place of humble admission that you do not have the adequacy to deal with what's going on in your life, and you finally admit, God, I do not know what I am doing. I do not know what to do next, but my eyes are on you. That's the point at which God can reverse the situation. Until then, your pain is going to increase. The complexity of your problem is going to overwhelm you. But when you admit you're at that point, that's the point at which God can get involved. And so they got their eyes off of their enemy, and they got their eyes on God. They turned their eyes to God. That is a, that is a, that is a point in time. What, what's your enemy? What's your problem? What's the threat? Is it grades? Is it a lack of money? Is it, is it a poor relationship? Is it your marriage? You don't know what to do? And that's the point at which you have to turn your eyes off of your problem and get them on God. And when you do that, you will discover that you're a candidate for an awakening. I mean, think about these people here. They're looking across the fence at the enemy. And when they turn their eyes to God, this is what happens. They realize any threat that doesn't kill them is designed by God to get their eyes on God at work on the earth. The same is true for you. Any threat, any battle that you're currently in, any emergency you're going through, That's designed by God to get your eyes on God at work on earth, as long as it doesn't kill you. You say, but what if it does? I mean, this is a really serious emergency. Well, there's good news. Any threat that does kill you is designed by God to get your eyes on Him at work in heaven. Think about that. You can't lose. 
Either way, you're going to see God at work. Either on earth or in heaven. What are you so afraid of? Admit you're powerless. Turn your eyes on him and say, God, I do not know what I am doing, but I know you do. And so I'm going to trust you. I'm going to acknowledge you. I need you in this moment, in this hour. Now, I want to get real practical. How do you get your eyes on God? What does that mean? I mean, that's a cool phrase, kind of poetic. What, What do you do? How do you get your eyes on God before you get in the emergency? I would highly advise you not to wait until you're in an emergency before you actually look to God. So you might want to develop some habits in your life and start with this. Get by yourself. You say, I thought you told me to get with other people. Well, it's kind of a balance. There are times when you, when I, when I say get by yourself, this is what I mean. Log off of Facebook, get off of Twitter, shut down your Instagram, turn off your cell phone, turn off the music, go away, unplug every electronic so that you will hear God's voice speak to you in the silence. I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you. I've got to get my eyes off of everything else and get them on God. Some of us haven't seen God work because we're too busy looking at everything else. Get on your knees. On your knees physically is the reminder of what needs to be happening in your heart, the place of submission before his throne. And get a list of every problem and every emergency going on in your life. Just write that down. This week, I, I was on my computer, I was looking through my file system, and I saw this file, just, just kind of grabbed my attention there, and I, I had dated it. it. It said July 28th, 2012, and when I saw that date, I immediately knew what, would, what the file was. Can I just give you a humble admission by your pastor? Okay, some of you are freak out right now, it's okay. Um, sometimes I do not know what to do. And on July the 28th, 2012... Honestly, that was the worst day in my ministry career. It was just, it was bad. And I'm like, this thing, and it wasn't because the church was stagnant. It was because the church was growing. And the complexity of what was going on around here was beyond my comprehension. I'm like, I do not know what to do. I'd lost a key staff member. I'd lost a close friend. And I'm like, I just, this, and so I remember I, 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 pulled my computer out, and I made a list of things that I did not know how to do. And at the top of the list, it says, highlights indicate urgent. In other words, God, if you don't act right now, um, I'm not quite sure that I'm going to survive or this church is going to survive. And I didn't have any answers for it. I was powerless to change any of it. You know what? Almost everything on here, somehow God has stepped in and done this. And, um, but on Friday, I made another list, and it's got a lot of highlights on it, and I still don't know what I'm doing. And so, uh, and, and, and if God doesn't move, if God doesn't send awake, we're still in a state of emergency around here. And if we ever lose that attitude, that's the point at which God says, I think I'm going to go work at this other church over here because they're too proud to figure out how powerless they are without me. Get a list of things that you do not know how to do. And number four, get a rhythm. That, the, the rhythm brings you back. It keeps you on pace, right? And there's a rhythm in prayer. Have any of you been taught a rhythm in prayer, a rhythm of prayer? Anybody ever heard of anything like that? Any, any pastor faithfully tried to teach you a, a rhythm of prayer? Do you remember it? Wow, help, come, thanks, Wow, 
help. Come, you remember that? Yeah. So, wow, that's the vertical, right? Before we ask God anything, we got to know who he is. Wow, God, you are so awesome. You're so incredible. You haven't lost an ounce of your power. You're full of might and power. And I got to get my eyes on you. And now that I've got my eyes on you, I realize you can help. Will you please? Can I get a little help down here? And God, will you come and the, the way that you're ruling heaven up there, would you bring some of that down here and do on earth what you're already doing in heaven? And thanks, thank you that you're gonna change this situation by faith, I believe you. Thank you for everything that you have done. And then back to wow, wow, help, come, thanks. There's a rhythm. And then number five, get a pen. Get a pen. And what I mean by that is sometimes I, the only way I can focus on prayer is to write the prayer because my mind is a cluttered mess of distractions. And pretty soon, I'll try to pray, but pretty soon I'm just thinking, and then I'm not thinking anymore, I'm just worrying. And all of that can happen in about 12 seconds in my mind. I, I was praying, what happened? I started thinking. Then I wasn't even thinking anymore, I was just feeling. Then I wasn't feeling, I was just emoting. And then I was crying. And then I was ready to walk into oncoming traffic. But I started this whole thing in prayer. So how did I get, I got to write the prayer, right? You say, oh, that's so stale that you would write a prayer. Do you realize that what we're reading is somebody's words that was, somebody bothered to write down the prayer they prayed so that we can read them and pray them back to God? So write out, get your eyes off of your enemy and get them on God. Here's the fifth element to revival praying it looks to God's word to define reality. <laughs> what you see with your eyes is not reality. That's just your perception. So how do you go from what is perceived reality to what is genuine reality? You need the word of God. And that's what happened in verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and their wives and their children. So what's the antecedent of the word there? Who is standing before who? Their wives. Who would, be, who would that be? That would be them husbands, right? And them fathers. Because men are always, always at the center of an awakening. And so they stood before the Lord and they brought their wives and brought their children. Verse 14, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. Who's that? The son of Zechariah. Who? The son of Benaiah. Who? The son of, we got the whole family tree here. A Levite and the son of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So who is Jehaziel? He's a prophet. Sometimes to have an awakening, God uses a king. Sometimes in awakening, God uses an assembly. And sometimes in an awakening, God uses a prophet. And all of it is necessary. What's the responsibility of a prophet? A responsibility of the prophet is to bring God's word to show the reality and bring the clarity to the situation. And so what does the prophet say in verse 15? He said, listen... Got to do that. Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle belongs to the Lord. 
That's reality. And if the battle belongs to the Lord, the only question is whose side am I on? And if God is for us, who can be against us? That is the responsibility of a faithful prophet, is to remind us who actually is fighting the battle on our behalf. We need the Word of God to define reality and bring clarity. Here is the sixth characteristic of revival praying. It stands firm with certainty. Look at verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, underline the word tomorrow, tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. So he gives them a threefold strategy. He tells them to stand firm, hold their position, and keep their eyes open to see the salvation of the Lord. Does that sound like a good battle plan to you? See the word stand there in verse 17? That's the fifth time we've seen that word in this passage. It's mentioned in verse 5, mentioned in verse 6, it's mentioned in verse 19, it's mentioned in in verse 13. Here it is in 17. We're going to see it again in verse 19. Standing up rather than retreating, hiding, blending, or folding is always God's battle plan. You have to stand in the place where God told you to stand. Don't change the position. Hold the position. Don't create a new position. Just hold the position, and it's in that position that you're going to see God work. If you do not stand and you don't hold the position, you're not going to see the salvation of the Lord. Here's the last thing. Revival praying believes God for the awakening. Verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites, oh, we got more people here. So who are the Levites? The Levites were the priests. Now, the priests were the mediators between God and the people. They were the prayer warriors. They were the worship leaders. In an awakening, you need a king You need an assembly, you need a prophet, and you need a wild-eyed, weird-haired, tattooed worship leader to call the people to extravagant worship. Watch what they did. They were the Kohathites and the Korahites, and they stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. You say, I'm done. I can't do that. I I make people afraid when I see. I have always said in this church that whatever you lack in beauty when you sing, make up for in volume. Just rear back and split the hair of the person in front of you. (laughs) They may need an awakening, okay? Okay. And so it is not about your tonality. It is not about your rhythm. It is all about the volume when you praise the Lord. It looks, look in verse 20. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. That was a 12-mile journey. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood, there it is again, they stood and said, hear me, Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God. 
There would be no awakening in spite of all that had happened previously if there was not an act of faith to believe that God would do what He had promised. And so he said, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe in His prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and to praise Him in holy attire. And they went before... Worship leaders always have weird attire. It's right here. And holy attire. And they went before an army and they said, give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. Chris Tomlin did not write that. He stole it right from here. Verse 22, And when they began to sing and praise the Lord, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who, came, who had come against Judah, that they were routed. When God wins, God wins big. Verse 23, and the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir. That means that there were three armies coming against the people of God, and two of the armies beat up on the third army. They wiped him out, so there were only two left. It was an elimination match, apparently. And then they got mad at each other, had a little fuss, and had a little spat, and they wiped each other out. And Israel's just standing back going, wow, that's, that's too bad. Look what God did to you. God did what God said He would do. And they began to destroy one another. Just skip down to verse 27. And they returned. Every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. They returned from Tekoa. It was a 12-mile worship marathon filled with praise. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies, and they came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets and drums and electric guitars to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Do you have any enemies? Is there a spiritual emergency going on in your life right now? Can I encourage you with something? Do you know that Jesus Christ right now in this moment is seated at the right hand of the Father praying for you? He knows what's going on. He knows that some of you are in a state of an emergency. There's a health report or the grades were not so great or there's cruddy stuff going on in your marriage or cruddy stuff going on with relationships, parents and children and God knows what's going on in America. God knows the moral collapse and the terrorist threat and the economic condition. God knows all of it. And Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for his saints. Hebrews 7.25 says this, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. What a great comfort it is to know that Jesus Christ knows what is happening in our world and in our lives and is making intercession for us today. Well, thanks for listening to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. 
We'd like to invite you to visit us for one of our weekend worship services, Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We're located on Hickory Road, just north of Cleveland Road in Granger, Indiana. Well, I'm Aaron Paulus, and my prayer for you is that God's Word would resonate in your heart and mind this week. I hope you'll join us again next week at this same time. Resonate is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. HarvestGranger.org